From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 5, Arguing About the Event, The Rise of Orthodoxy. So today we're moving into chapter five of Church History in Plain Language, and we're going to be talking about the development of Christian theology, or at least the start of the development of Christian theology, Taylor. And and one of the things I think that we have to remember is that for the first 300 years or so of the church, because persecution is kind of a central facet of the experience of the church in that age, there is not a lot of time, attention, bandwidth given to um, sussing out theological matters. Yeah, like there is not a lot of like in-depth theological writing. Um, or debate that's going on at that point in time. Mm -hmm. The theological writing that's going on by the early church in the 100s and 200s is largely focused on responding to uh, what are called heresies around the church, which would simply be teachings that are counter to the orthodox teaching of the church. And that's kind of where Shelley starts in this chapter, is dealing with this question of what is orthodoxy, um, because it's it's kind of similar to that word Catholic that we've been talking about. And you remember, Shelley calls this the age of Catholic Christianity. Mm-hmm. And we're inclined to hear that word and think Roman Catholic Church. But what he's talking about there, as we've said in recent episodes, is he's talking about the universal nature of the church, that there is one Christian church at this point in time. And there are not denominations. There are not really like sects or different groups of Christians. Um, instead, there are uh, there, the the separation point is purely geographical, right? Mm-hmm. Like Christians are separated by city, uh, to some extent separated by region. And what we've said is in the Roman Empire, at least fairly early on, Christianity really kind of begins in the eastern part of the Roman Empire and then transitions into the western part of the Roman Empire. And there is a division there. There is kind of a cultural division between East and West. And that cultural division will continue to uh, become a chasm as, yeah. we, as we move forward. But early on, the focus really is on orthodoxy. And, and that word orthodox just means conforming to established doctrine or conforming to mainstream Doctrine. So to be orthodox means that you're sort of falling in line what, with what is generally accepted by the universal church to be the way uh, that we are to think about doctrine. So it's majority belief. Yeah, and Shelley really kind of hits on that point uh, here in this chapter. Uh, theology, on the other hand, uh, he breaks that down for us, just the word itself two words, Greek words, theos, uh, meaning God, logos, meaning word or rational thought. So theology is rational thought about God. And he contrasts that with religion, Mm -hmm. you know, and saying, hey, theology and religion are not the same thing. Religion is our effort 
to live by our belief, whereas theology is thinking rationally or rightly about God. So uh, I think the best way for you to remember that is that theology is about thought primarily, and it is a, and religion is primarily about practice. So theology, thought, religion, practice. And what he says is Catholic Christianity was both universal in contrast to being local. It wasn't simply confined to one city. It wasn't confined to Jerusalem only um, or Antioch or someplace like that. It, it is um, multi-local. It's universal. Uh, and it's orthodox in contrast to being heretical, right, which is what we were talking about earlier um, with heresy. So uh, in this chapter, we're really going to get into some of the heresies that uh, invade the early church. And a lot of those things uh, were certainly theological in nature, but even more than that, many of them were Christological in nature, meaning uh, Christology would be rational thought or right thinking about Christ. Mm -hmm. And most of the early heresies that the church has to kind of do battle against are uh, poking holes in or asking questions about or presenting different perspectives on who Christ is. And in particular... Uh, this this dual nature of Christ, this hypostatic union of Christ, where he is both God and man at the same time. And most of the early heresies want to say, no, he's not both of those things. He's he's either he's either man or he is God, or there are some strange in-between ones where sometimes he's man and sometimes he's God, right? <laughs> yeah. And so the church has to has to fight against these unorthodox or heretical teachings that are popping up early on in the church. Um, and so the theology you mentioned, this is this is hammered out along the way. So this yeah. is not, it's not like folks have the time or the freedom to just go sit in university, which certainly there weren't any, right. but go sit in the forum and and like flip through their, their accounts of the gospels and hammer out some theology. They're being actively persecuted. And so when these extreme groups show up at the fringes of the church and are preaching and practicing something other than the universally accepted beliefs and practices, that's been pointed as heresy, and then doctrine is kind of formed to to push it out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you're right on in in saying that nobody's nobody really has the bandwidth to sit down and just devote themselves fully to like explaining how we are to think right. about God in all ways. Um even even about something like the Trinity, and 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 that's a central thing for the early church is explaining and understanding the Trinity. But it's really not until the three hundreds, which is when the Roman Empire legalizes Christianity. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, uh, the age of persecution ends uh, with something called the Edict of Milan, and the Roman Emperor Constantine is a major figure in that, and we, we will get into all of that later. Um, but it's not until that point of peace where suddenly people are actually, to some extent, freed up to devote a significant amount of time and effort into uh, unpacking Scripture and really trying to articulate that in an orthodox way for the culture at large. Hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, so what Shelley says is orthodoxy is the form that won the support of the overwhelming majority of Christians, and that is expressed by most of the official proclamations and creeds of the church. Um, and in a moment, we'll look at what's called the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed is one of the earlier creeds 
But as we talk about often here as, as a church that says what's called the Nicene Creed yeah. every week, the Nicene Creed comes out of that period of peace I was just describing a few minutes ago. So it, it's much longer, it's much more involved than the Apostles' Creed, even though the basic structure is very much the same. The mm-hmm. Apostles' Creed is trying to uh, describe on some level the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but the Nicene Creed is really the creed that goes in-depth on that and digs even more deeply into it. And the Nicene Creed, as we'll learn eventually, is is also responding to a particular heresy that had gained popularity at that point in time. Hmm. Um, Shelley says that early Christianity was distinctly Jewish and that they explain the faith in those terms. And we certainly see this in the New Testament, right? I mean, all of the apostles um, are Jews, right? And they're coming out of Judaism and they're expressing the gospel in terms of Jesus having been a Jew and having been the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants and prophecies. So Christianity is inextricably linked to Judaism. Yeah, and most of their early audiences are going to be the rest of the Jewish people. That's right. But that's their that's quite possibly their biggest opponent yeah. early on are are like good Jews, right? They're and and we talked about this a little bit in our first live class, but you know, very quickly what happens is Hellenistic Christians, so so Greek influenced, non non ethnically Hebrew people who had become Christians are a primary uh, pool of converts for the early Christian church, and um, we see we see that at Pentecost, right? Yeah. This, I, th- go ahead. Sorry, sorry I was going to say when I was reading this, I literally had to draw a flowchart for myself to get from. To understand what a Hellenistic Christian was, mm. and so it, the thing that made it help for, helpful for me was these are folks in the Roman Empire who are under Greek culture and influence, so they're like Greek right. Roman citizens who convert to Judaism. So they're not Hebrew people; they're they're Greek and Roman citizens who convert to Judaism, who are then Greek or Hellenistic Jews who then convert to Christianity and are now the Hellenists, right. this group of Christians who were formerly Jews who were formerly just something else out in the Roman Empire. Yes. So yes. Ho- hopefully that helps somebody follow along. Well, and, and I think the thing to, to take away from that is those are two very different cultures. Like yeah. Hebrew culture and Greek culture are very different cultures, and they have sort of different underlying philosophies. Um, that shape the way people think about life, the way people think about God. And so as Hellenistic Christians come into the mix, they, they naturally bring along with them some of their unique ways of thinking about right. God. And, and that, that's not wholly bad, um, but there are certainly some things that come in that would be counter to what we would think of as Orthodox Christianity. Really the first conflict that the church experiences, and we see this in the New Testament, um, but it continues on after um, some of the books of the New Testament are written. The first conflict really is with uh, Jewish Christians um, who have a hard time wrapping their mind around the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant Mm -hmm. and that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has established a new covenant. And so, and 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 I have a lot of empathy for them because I, I would think that if you're if you're an adult 
who grew up in a staunchly uh, religiously Hebrew home. You were raised in the synagogue. You were raised taking part in the Jewish festivals and feasts, going to the temple every year at Passover, things like that, that what you're expecting in a Messiah is is like the most Jewish person ever, right? Yeah. The, like the Hebrew of Hebrews. And, and so this notion that this gospel is not just for us, even though this Messiah has come out of our people group and is in, in, in and Jesus is a distinctly Jewish person, um, but that the good news of his death and resurrection is for everybody. And you don't have to become a Jew first in order to become a Christian. Like I can understand why that notion would have been difficult for people to wrap their heads around, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this group we see in the New Testament who are called the Judaizers. It's <laughs> a decent band name. It, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a like a ray gun out of a science fiction movie that <laughs> makes you Judaizer. makes you Jewish. Um, but the Judaizers all are those people, right? They're yeah. the they're the the like distinctly ethnically Hebrew Christians who believe Jesus is the Messiah, but struggle with the notion that there are Romans or Greeks or Syrians who are converting to Christianity, but that those people are not necessarily required to keep the law of Moses right. or observe the traditional Jewish feasts. Mm-hmm. Um, that That just doesn't compute to them. And that becomes the first significant conflict for the church. Yeah, and this is what Paul runs into and writes a decent bit about in some of his letters, yeah? Absolutely. And and we see this in Acts as well, Acts 15, right. at, at the, the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Council, Council, which to some extent you can look at as the first council of the Catholic the church. church. Yeah. You know, it, it is this gathering of the apostles mm-hmm. that takes place in Jerusalem. And that's the primary conflict that, you know, most of the councils that pop up, pop up in response to something. It's like, we have, okay, we've got to put our heads together here and figure out how to respond to whatever the issue is. And so the issue at that point in time is that Gentiles are converting. Yeah. So what do we do about the law? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Does the law go out the window? How, How do we, how do we deal with this? And and if you remember, the outcome of that Jerusalem council is they is the apostles decide together they don't have to become Jews right. in order to be followers of Jesus, um, and that's a that's a massive thing. Like, and and that's one of the first big sort of pronouncements of this universal Catholic Church is that this gospel is for all people. And you do you don't have to convert to one thing first in order to convert to Christ second. Yeah, there's no stepping stones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there there are a number of passages of scripture uh, that Shelley mentions uh, in terms of like a kind of a New Testament attempt at starting to put some of this orthodox theology into words, mm-hmm. um, and and certainly Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Um, it is is in my mind kind of the primary theological treatise of the New Testament. Like if you're just if you just want to look at one book and and 
and and walk through it and kind of get a sense of what the early Christians believed about God, that's certainly a great place to start. Um, but a couple of other things that he mentions here, uh, one is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, and, and this is Paul uh, basically laying out for the church in Corinth what his like basic statement of the, of the gospel is. And, and what you'll notice here is is this is uh, by modern standards very bare bones, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you ask if you ask a theologian today what's the gospel, well, you're going to get an ext- a book, a book, yeah. But but Paul says, "For I delivered to you as a fir- as a first importance what I also received." So I, I'm I'm giving to you guys, or I have given to you guys what what I received and and here's what that is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas that's Peter then to the 12 then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles and last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me so, like, Paul's basic gospel is that Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead, and then he proved his resurrection by appearing to all of these different people, yeah. in- including me. To be fair, Paul does appeal to the entire Old Testament by, by saying in accordance with the scriptures a couple times. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's an important point to make. Like, so he's 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 also saying that this is what was foretold. Right. Right. And um, this is something that uh, I think is key here, and we talked about this a little bit at our first live class, but just the way that the early Christians interpreted the Old Testament scripture is is sort of a central piece of what defines the early church. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's the first conflict that they that the church really encounters, and that's not so much a heresy, right? Right. Uh, the The heresy would be requiring people to become Jewish and to observe the law of Moses and to observe all the Jewish traditions and feasts and festivals and all of those things, and saying you have to do that in order to be Christian. And the reason that would be heretical is because it flies in the face of what Jesus said right. in, what is it, Matthew 5, when he came to fulfill the law, and now that he has, right. we're not bound by that law. And then he gives us a summary of the law, which is our commandment anyway. Well, and also what he says at the Last Supper, too, that, right. that his blood is establishing a new covenant, right? Um, so, so, yeah, that's correct. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with you being ethnically Jewish right. and uh, taking part in the Feast of Passover. Or, you know, like there's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But when you say that's required in order to be a follower of Jesus, that, that the New Testament would say is a step too far. Right. And so you're requiring something of people that Christ himself does not require. Um, but from there, there are a number of other heresies that pop up. We'll talk about three um, and one in particular. But but the first two that Shelley mentions, um, the first group, and again, remember that most of these heresies revolve around Jesus's uh, divinity and humanity, uh, or again, what's called the hypostatic union. Um, and what we believe is that Jesus is both God and man. And that is uh, a statement that is mysterious in nature, yeah. right? We don't really know where uh, the God part of him begins and ends and where the human part of him begins and ends. And but we know it's not a 50-50 mix or yeah. like a 48-52. It's, 
It's yeah. 100% and dead. And it's not a thing where it's like from the hours of 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., he's God. <laughs> I'm and, God yeah, today. Right. Um, but, and, and that sounds silly to say, and yet because there is not a... Um, you know, there's not like a library of Christian theological teaching at this point in time. And because everybody does not have access to a Bible, mm-hmm. people have access to the Old Testament scriptures. But but at this point in time where we're at, the, the canon of the New Testament has not been uh, established and, right. and codified. Um, and even once it is... Average everyday people do, don't have Bibles yeah. in, the, in the way that we have Bibles today. Um, these uh, these books were engaged as individual scrolls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so these first few heresies, um, the first group that he mentions is called uh, the Abona the Abonites, or Ebionites, um, and 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 basically their belief was that Jesus was a human who by his scrupulous obedience to the law was justified and then became the Messiah. Which sounds like the perfect Hebrew. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I don't, I, I mean, historically, I don't think this this really catches on. Like, the, yeah. this is certainly present, but this does not become like a movement um, that Jesus was somehow fully human but at the same time, he's also somehow the perfect human. Yeah. Right? He, somehow this fully human person was able to do what no other fully human person was able to do, which is he was able to perfectly fulfill the law. And it's almost like because he could perfectly fulfill the law, God then like made him mm-hmm. the Christ. So that's one heresy that pops up. I think I think it's clear why that one uh, has, some, has some problems. Uh, the second one I think is much more widespread. And, and even exists to this day to some extent. And, and that's what's called docetism. Mm-hmm. Um, docetism, uh, and, the, and the Greek word, the origin word there means to seem, um, to seem. And Shelley even says uh, that one theologian says that this should just be called seemism, which is basically the opposite from uh, the Ebionites, which was that um, Jesus was not man at all, that Jesus was really... Uh, a spectral appearance, Ghost. Shelley said. Yeah, he's he is like a a specter. He looks like a man. He seems like a man, um, but he's not. He only seemed to suffer for humankind's sins, since we all know that divine beings are incapable of dying. Right. right? That's that's kind of the crux of that whole position. It's like, yeah, if he's really God in the flesh, incarnate. Well, God can't die. Mm-hmm. And so there's a presupposition that you're bringing to the table there is that God can't die. And yet what we see in Christ is that there is there is a real death that takes place. Um, and and that's, a, that's a point of debate for early theologians is does human Jesus die? Does does divine Jesus die who yeah. comes back from the dead is where it, does he go yeah is he is he when he comes back from the dead is he still human and divine or is he only divine after he comes back from the dead and why does he say things like don't cling to me mm-hmm. you know um, I haven't yet ascended to my father um, so so there's just a lot of um, different opinions and debate that's going on in the early church around this issue. But, but most of those questions that you just mentioned, because I've had conversations around those same things, yeah. most of those questions are purely speculative and, and don't necessarily border on heresy. Heresy is 
dragging those questions backward in the story and then applying it to Jesus's life before his crucifixion and death. That's correct. So so asking the questions is not heretical, right? right. Wondering about those things is certainly not heretical. But then imposing that but, on the text. But when you arrive at a position that is counter to what Orthodox Christianity has held, and yeah. and and then you claim that as as the orthodox position. Yeah, that's where that's where it becomes heresy. Yeah, because I, I see where you get there. God the Father is eternal, right? right? So he's he's not going to die. Therefore, if we want to apply that same thing to Jesus, well, then he must not have really died. And so yeah. th- that's when you get down on that rabbit trail. The, yeah, that's right. And that actually leads us into the the third uh, heretical movement here, which is is easily the largest. I love a good segue of all of these. <laughs> Um, and this is called Gnosticism. Yeah. Um, Gnosticism, and Shelley points this out, uh, Gnosticism is an umbrella term. Um, it's not like there there is like one group called the Gnostics. Right. Um, there are a variety of different groups, and these groups are all deeply, I think, influenced by Hellenistic culture, um, which largely was a culture that looked favorably on things spiritual and looked negatively on things that were material. Hmm. Um, so so that's, that's the big uh, dividing line here is Gnostics believe anything spiritual is good uh. at its core and anything uh, material, whether your human body or the earth itself or any, anything else material in our world, that that all of those things are inherently evil. So that's true dualism. That's true true dualism. Um, another facet of Gnosticism is that it is presented as a form of like secret knowledge that um, normally comes through a, a particular teacher or guru or philosopher who says, no one else sees this, but I've been given this special knowledge, and if you come under my teaching, Mm. the special knowledge can also be imparted to you. Um, And that happens in a variety of cultic settings that are not necessarily Gnostic in nature. What, What makes these particular settings Gnostic in nature is there is this secret knowledge, and the secret knowledge um glorifies the spiritual and demonizes the material. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that dualistic perspective. And so, um, yeah, those are those sort of cosmic forces of good and evil. And Christianity would certainly say, yeah, there are, there are these cosmic forces of good and evil that are at work. You know, the story of Scripture is largely a story of good and evil, right? But the the step that Gnosticism would take would be to say that any creator god must be evil because any god who makes material things must be a trickster he must be evil at his core and so if uh, a creator god made this world and made human beings and everything then he must not be the real supreme deity he must be sort of a sub Deity. He must be some sort of less powerful or evil God who is overseeing this world. Okay. Um, and so for many Gnostics, Christ was a subordinate power 
who was sent by the supreme deity, the supreme deity being the deity who somehow didn't create anything material and is fully removed from anything material, but also maybe feels benevolent towards us somehow here in this place. Yeah, this does sound more and more Greek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we get into it. And, um, and, And Gnostics would have invoked the name of Jesus. They believed in Jesus. Um... But they believe that Jesus perhaps was sort of sent by this ultimate supreme deity, kind of past the creator God of this world, uh, to come into our existence and to illuminate for certain people that there is another path or there is another way or there is a higher spiritual realm mm. that we should attain to. Okay. Um, so this is deeply mystical and mysterious in nature. Um, it is it is completely anti the material world, um, hmm. and it's a real fascinating thing. And and to some extent, we we see vestiges of this even today in our world. This quest for uh, the spiritual instead, and 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 to some extent, a denial of the material or a demonizing of the material. Um, I think that's still something that we find in, in like new age movements today. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes those things will be linked to a sort of guru or philosopher or teacher. Yeah, that's what I was right? saying. That special knowledge is still mm-hmm. wildly um, active. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes in the Gnostic world in, in the first few centuries, it would be uh, – uh, a lot of similar language would be used that, that Jesus was, would use. So Jesus talked about light and being the light of the world. And so Gnostics would talk about having light and like having sort of discovered this spiritual light yeah. um, that is informing everything. So hmm. Shelley says the first major test of faith in, um, in this time was not denial of Jesus Christ's deity, it was the rejection of his humanity, mm-hmm. and and it's Gnosticism that's doing that. Gnosticism is saying, no, 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 <laughs> believe me, Jesus is not human because if he if he was human, he would be evil. Yeah, um, but instead, he is he has been sent from the supreme deity. He's purely a spiritual being, and they do a lot of gymnastics to kind of get there. Um, one thing Shelley points out is is them kind of going, uh, Jesus was just some guy, Jesus was just some human guy, and somehow the uh, the real Christ, the spiritual Christ, came on him at his baptism and, and um, possessed this human guy, ah. and then prior to um, the arrest or the crucifixion, the real spiritual Christ left this person Jesus. Right, because it couldn't be harmed. Because it couldn't, yeah, it couldn't take part in any of this base hmm. uh, human stuff. Okay. Now, now I don't know how they get around uh, this divine spiritual Christ um, in, like possessing a human body yeah. and like why that isn't, why that material body isn't somehow, um, you know, doesn't uh, rub off on him in a negative way, right? Well, the heresy only goes so far. That's right. So there are a lot of holes here, obviously. Um, But one of the things Shelley says is that the early Christians found Gnostics difficult to combat because the Gnostics said that the Christians were blinded because of their materialism, right? And and because they were embodied human beings focused on the material, whereas as Gnostics, we've been given the secret knowledge. Like we have the real real goods, Mm. um, and these Christians are blinded. Um, So... um, so yeah, that's a that's a uh, 
a real challenging thing for the early Christians. And what Shelley says is that one of the ways for combating that in this age where people don't have theological books to read and people don't have Bibles is the development of the creeds, right? And so one of the earliest creeds, and there are a number of forms of this creed, uh, is what's called the Apostles' Creed. This is on page 66 in my book. Is that the page you're on? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Page 66, and um, you, you've possibly heard slightly different forms of this. This is not a creed that was necessarily written by the apostles. Um, instead, it's called the Apostles' Creed because this is um, a, like the teaching of the creed is attributed to the apostles, yeah. right? This is believed to be the thing, the, the faith that the apostles were handing down. To, previous, to subsequent generations. So it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and the life everlasting. Yeah. There you go. You can hear a lot of the uh, underpinnings in the Nicene Creed in that. That's right. So the basic structure of the Nicene Creed's there. Mm -hmm. It begins with, we believe in God the Father, then we believe in Jesus Christ, and then finally we believe in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So the triune God. Um, but this becomes a significant thing for the church because it's a, it's a foothold for them, and it's a way for good Orthodox theology to get into the minds and the mouths and the hearts of just everyday Christians. Yeah. So let's wrap up uh, with this quote from Shelley, and um, here it is. He says, Humanity needs salvation not because we are imprisoned in a body, right? Not because we're material, we need salvation because we each willfully choose our own way rather than God's way. Our evil is not just in the body, it's also in our minds and our affections. We love the wrong things. And um, gosh, man, I, I thought that's such a great way to sum this up. Yeah. Because that that is the counter to everything the Gnostics were claiming. Um, our problem is not that we are embodied people. Our problem is that we are sinful people who are in need of a Savior. 